you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Acts chapter 12. We're not going to read the entire chapter. And all God's people said, Amen. We'll skip around a little bit here, but Acts chapter 12. Starting at verse 1, 1 through 5 here, and then we'll skip around here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Skipping down to verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. On to verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right, so continuing in Acts, we find ourselves in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is actually a pretty pivotal chapter. This is uh, one of the hinges. There are several hinge chapters in Acts where the trajectory changes. And, and the events that take place in chapter 12 really do set up the rest of the book. And they also serve to be the uh, sort of the ending of this section of Acts sort of like the end of Act 2, and then we go into Act 3 in Acts. And it's, and it's Acts, so that makes sense, I guess. But if you look at chapter 12, we start out with someone who I think we'd all but forgotten. I think we'd forgotten that there are other leadership sort of structures there in the area, but talks about someone named Herod. And so Herod is brought up almost out of out of, out of the blue, we have Herod again. We'll, we'll see that in just a second here. But to kind of see where we are, let's kind of look backwards a little bit to the previous act that we're finishing here. In Acts chapter 7, there's a transition and there's a change. You don't have to turn there. But going back to, to that, that chapter, in chapter 7, we see the uh, the death of Stephen, which we will be addressing again here in just a little bit. But this sort of marks the ramping up of persecution for the church. So this is after Peter and John have been arrested several times, been a good example of how you operate before the religious leaders. Stephen preaches this sermon. And it really is when he starts to talk about this blessing from God being extended to the Gentiles, that's really what tipped them over the edge. And you have zealous people going and killing Stephen in the street with a young man holding their garments who will become pretty pivotal, that being Saul of Tarsus. And so you have the religious sort of leaders that that was kind of their big culmination there. And we see that Stephen is an example of someone who's able to stand their ground, speak the word, 
and seemingly receive kind of the worst that they could throw at him, which was death. And I don't think, if you see what Stephen saw and what he said, it didn't seem like he really was too bothered much at all. In fact, what he saw was glorious. That at least was his report, was that he saw glory. Chapter 8, we sort of see this shifting to Samaria because of this persecution that popped up. Now the actual mission that Jesus had placed them on really starts to ramp up and you actually see the church, you see the gospel extend to Samaria. And we talked about the outer regions of Judea as well when we were talking there, but we see quote-unquote secondary characters, not the apostles, not those who are part of the 12, actually stepping out and accomplishing those things. Obviously, we see the example of Stephen and we see Philip following those examples uh, as well, taking the gospel places where it, there were seeds of the gospel, but this full gospel post-resurrection, coming of the kingdom time period, this is where we start to see it really move. Chapter 9, we do get the conversion of Saul, which if you look at it in the larger sort of picture, is the Lord showing that it doesn't matter if the Sanhedrin is after you. We can go ahead and just convert them to the kingdom of light as necessary. And so the Lord does that. Commissions Saul brings him from being a persecutor of the church, someone with amazing zeal to go and to actually go against the church in a a physical way, in a persecution type of way. Saul is then brought into the kingdom. You could see this as the Lord sort of circumventing the religious leaders and say, you know what, I'm just gonna take the worst of you and I'm just gonna go ahead and I'll bring you in and I will make you one of my apostles. What are you gonna do now? So that's what he does. What you see in the chapters after that is you see Peter as an example deals with the Gentiles. And I say deals with because he has visions, he has interactions, and we spent a couple of weeks talking about this expansion of the church into that place, that realm of the nations. And we're going to continue to see that throughout the next chapters. Chapter 12 sort of completes this where we see the interaction of the church and the Jewish political system. That's sort of where we, where we start here. This sort of closes out a lot of the threads that had started with Jesus and you see the church picking up picking up his example and continuing to walk. And this is sort of one of the last parts, one of those last aspects of Jesus' ministry that the church then continues in. And we'll see that here. But we're introduced to this character here, Herod. Now here he's just called Herod, the king. And not to go into too much of history, but this is the same family of those Herods that we saw At the time of Jesus, Jesus goes and stands before someone named Herod that happens to be uh, not Herod Agrippa like we see here, but we see uh, this is Herod Antipas that came before that. And you have Herod the Great who was alive at the birth of Jesus. He's the one who ordered the death of the children in Bethlehem. So you have Herod the Great, then you have Antipas who... Um, or I'm sorry, uh, I can't remember his name. Mm, no, it's not, but it doesn't matter. Uh, basically, he has, the, he has the worst reputation. I didn't write it down because, of course, I didn't think that I would be addressing it, but I did. Um, where Joseph says, mm, maybe we should move to Galilee. I'll think of it here in a second when it doesn't matter. But he's, he's essentially the worst of the group. He is the most um, hated of all of the Herods, if you want to say, and the nation actually appealed to Rome and had him removed. That's how bad he really was. But then what you have here is you have Herod Agrippa here. This is during during this period of Acts. You have Agrippa, who we will be introduced to here, and we will also see his end in just a moment. But you have Herod, who is king, 
At least he's called that. He's only half Jewish. This Herod Agrippa, he grew up in Rome. He was educated there. In his late teen years, he actually was made king. Because he'd made the friends that he had made, he got the position that he had there in Israel. It was much more of what we'd probably refer to or think of as like a governorship, where he was appointed that, that role there. Even though he was part of this sort of dynastic political family, there in the region, it was still sort of dependent on Rome, putting these people in place. But Agrippa really did try to be a Jewish king. He tried to do Jewish things, be a part of Jewish rituals and ceremonies and things. He would go and actually read parts of the Torah when he was supposed to. He wanted to try to impress the Jews. He wanted to have them love him, if you want to put it that way. Which kind of gives you a backdrop to this verse that we have here. Herod decided to lay his hands on members of the church. Could have been more than just James that we see, but in verse two it says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now to kind of put it in its proper perspective, remember this is post sort of that intense persecution that sort of scattered the church. You have the apostles still hanging around the area and obviously certain members of the church still there. But most of the visitors who had come, they're all gone. So the church is much smaller than it was in the earlier parts of Acts. But apparently, the apostles were still pretty accessible. It doesn't seem like they were running and hiding. They were probably going about their normal business, and so they were taken, or at least James was. James was taken, and if you look at verse 3, it says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So at the very least, James and Peter were known enough to just go and be picked up. I'm sure if we wanted to make a movie about it, we could and extend that a bit and running around trying to find them, all that kind of stuff. But for as far as we know, they were able to just be found. They were probably still doing apostly things, going to the temple, going and visiting people. It does not seem that they were trying to hide. And as we read here, verse 3, sorry, verse 2, that's all we really hear of James. That's, that's all of it. They got him. They killed him by the sword. So, a couple of things there. Um, the Jewish, the, the religious leadership, they did not have the authority to enact capital punishment. That was left to the political system to do that, which seemingly Herod was able to do. So he died by the sword. Probably what was accessible to him. We don't know anything about that situation, what it looked like, how it was. Most likely it was done in public because it looks like Herod was doing this in order to gain favor with the Jews. Most likely the the Jewish religious leadership which in turn would give him favor with the people. You'll notice here it says that it was during the days of unleavened bread that they also arrested Peter. Almost like, well, killed James and that one so well, let's go ahead and we'll have another. Took Peter. So Peter is now captured and imprisoned, but he has to wait. It could be that he just has to wait because the days of unleavened bread had started and so you have to wait till they're completed before you could do something like that or at least he wanted to wait. It could be that he wanted to wait because this time period would have been one that not only the Jews would celebrate but also the Christians would celebrate this time period as sort of a anniversary of what took place during Passion Week. So possibly there was even more activity going on in the city. Maybe the apostles were even more active during this time. And so as soon as that time closed, to then bring Peter up, one of the leaders of the movement, to then have him executed would have been a powerful symbol. That's, we don't have a lot of time markers throughout Acts. 
This is one of the only times where we have a, a solid time to kind of nail down, but because of the timing of Herod and some of the other things, this is most likely years after those opening chapters of Acts. Maybe five to seven years-ish, somewhere in there, from when the events, other events of Acts were taking place. And so when we get to this, we can see like, yeah, if Christianity is growing, we just saw that they were called Christians in Antioch, so if this, if this movement was growing and it was becoming more solid, something like this, I'm sure, they were thinking if we kill off the leadership, we might kill it for real. But it doesn't seem like they really understand what's really going on. Verse four. This is where we kind of see that there, some of this is really done just for posturing. So if you look at verse four here, it says, and when they had seized him, Peter, they put him in prison and delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, euphemistic for execution. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the, by, uh, sorry, made to God by the church. He was, he was guarded by four squads. A squad was four soldiers. So there's 16 men watching Peter. Very dangerous Peter. If you release him, he might do good deeds, right? I mean, he does not have any reputation of being violent. He's not aggressive. If you let him go, if you look at his track record, good things might happen, which actually is probably what they were trying to stop. They're trying to stop this progression of Christianity. See, at this point, there's nothing they could really do to stop them. The religious leaders, like we talked about, had kind of been dampened in their effectiveness of persuading people away from Christianity. You don't really have any other groups that are really pushing up against this. This is sort of their last-ditch effort to really try to stop this movement in its tracks. And it's just not working. This is actually very close to what was happening with Jesus. So with Jesus, basically Jesus was going around, and what was his reputation? He was going around, and he was doing good. He was preaching. The religious leaders didn't really like it. But he had such a good reputation with the people, they couldn't really do much about it. And it was almost as if Jesus went traveling around, doing certain things in order to agitate the Jewish religious leadership. So we finally get to the point where he raises Lazarus from the dead, and at that point the religious leaders say, this has to stop. We have to kill him, and we have to kill Lazarus. They're like, that's it. They couldn't let it just go. This is where I think you have the shrewd, like this tactician sort of Jesus who is making sure that the enemy has no other options other than putting him to death because that had to be the plan. The Lamb of God had to die. Had to die at a certain time, in a certain way. And Jesus knows just which buttons to push at just what time to really make that happen. And the enemy, seemingly, does not know. In 1 Corinthians, it says that if they had known, if the enemy had known, Satan had known, they would not have killed the king of glory. If they really knew what was going on, they would not have completed that plan. So Jesus outwitted the serpent. But really brought them to a point where there's no other option for them than to silence Jesus. This is exactly what's happened with the church. They've finally gotten to the point where the only option they have is to try to kill them off. Which I think leads us to a few things that we need to kind of think through. If they're at this point where the only thing that they can do to stop the progression of the church is to try to kill the leadership, it means that the message that the church has been giving and delivering has been not only the true gospel, but delivered in such a way 
that even their enemies understand the seriousness of the message of the gospel. The real message of the gospel isn't about someone living a better life. It's not about you being blessed. It's not about someone being able to have a strong family life. It's not about someone who's able to give in such a way that God will bless them, those types of things. It's not any of that. The real message of the gospel is the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming and will supplant all other political systems and kingdoms that exist because there is not any darkness that can stand in the face of light. That is the message of the gospel. And when those who follow in the kingdom of darkness realize the seriousness of the message of the gospel, there is no other response that they have than to try to just stop it. So you could say this, the arrest of Peter and having him put in prison and the martyrdom first of Stephen and then of James represents that understanding that the enemies of the cross finally understand the seriousness of the coming kingdom, which means they were doing a good job of preaching the gospel, that their enemies understood the stakes. So here's Peter waiting to be executed. Let's look at verse six. This is where we catch up to that. So verse five, it says the church is praying for Peter. Verse six, now Herod was about to bring him out, and on that very night, Peter is sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door, guarding the prison. Now, this is what we call classic overkill. But it's also them delivering a message. This is them delivering the message that this man is dangerous, even though Peter represents no actual physical danger at all. But what else are they supposed to do? This is a signal, right? Hey, everybody else, look, look at what is going on here. Peter is dangerous. Here's the other thing to notice. This was the night before he was to be brought out. So that meant that whole time that he had been in prison, he had been waiting. And it says that they were praying in verse 5, and we find out later on after this that they were continuing to pray. So the church had been praying this whole time. So here's another funny thing. God waited to do what he's going to do here until the last night. Not the first night, not the second night, all the way to the last possible night. We'll see what happens here. Verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. This is one of my favorite parts here. Last half of verse seven. It says he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Peter is so soundly sleeping. The angel shows up in the bright light. I'm sure the angel, you know, maybe this is an angel who visits somebody else, is used to this bright light and people fall down afraid. Here's this massive bright light that fills the cell and Peter just keeps on sleeping. To the point where it says the angel had to physically like, hit him. Like, tap him on the shoulder. So, you know, in the, in the, if we were making the movie, right? Big bright light, angel shows up, starts talking, Peter, he finally just gets down, hey, wake up, wake up. Uh, uh, he wakes up. And then, so, okay, now, now listen to my message. But here's the point. This is the last night before he's going to be brought out. And what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping so soundly that the angel has to wake him up, tap him on the shoulder. Who does that sound like? 
That sounds like Jesus. That sounds exactly like Jesus. Do you remember in the midst of the storm, all the disciples, they're all, you know, pretty good fishermen, at least know how to run a boat, freaking out thinking they're going to die. It's that bad of a storm. Where's Jesus? He's asleep. And they make it personal. Lord, don't you care we're all going to die? Finally wakes up. Have to go wake him up. What? Oh, yeah. That's the level of sleep for someone who is resting in the Lord. Not just resting as in he's exhausted. But resting in the Lord like, yeah, okay, tomorrow I'm going to be brought out. It's, it's just going to be another day. Another day the Lord gives me. He was so settled in his heart and his mind that he was in the hand of God that it didn't matter. He just was asleep. Would you be able to sleep? We have kids that can't sleep because you have their birthday the next day. So excited, right? Maybe you have one of the, maybe there's an important meeting or something and you can't sleep because you're thinking, that's not Peter. Peter is sound asleep. Maybe for a couple of reasons. Number one, if he's going to be brought out by Herod to be executed, he knows he's not going to be crucified. That's a Roman thing. So possibly that. Maybe he knows, well, the Lord told me, if you go to John chapter 21, one of the things that Jesus indicates is how he's going to die, stretching out his arms. So you're going to die by crucifixion. They figured that out. They knew that part. So maybe Peter's like, no, I'm not going to die. I'm not getting crucified, so I know I'm not going to die. Like, I trust Jesus' words. Like, that, that could have been it. But the other side of it is, is that maybe he just thought, yeah, this is my time. This is it. Knew it was going to happen. How different a Peter do we have here than when he was with Jesus, watching Jesus? But what we have here is the disciple living like the master, so settled in his faith, so settled in the plan of God that he can sleep that soundly knowing that his execution is scheduled for the next day. Angel goes in, taps him on the shoulder. Hey, wake up. Now he says, get up quickly. Maybe they have to hurry up because he kept snoozing. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. That's pretty neat. Angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And so he did it. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. When he went out and followed him, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision, which is understandable. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city and opened of its own accord. He went out into the street and immediately the angel left him. Job done. Peter came, says came to himself, kind of snapped out of it. Oh, this is real, right? He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also named Mark, John Mark, who we were introduced to in the Gospels. He was a young young buck then, um, probably a little bit older now, but he will become an important figure here in a bit. It said, and where there were uh, many that were gathered there, they were together and they were praying. When he knocked on the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I also, I really love who gets named in some of these stories. So the servant girl has a name. We don't know the name of any of the soldiers. We don't even know the name of the angel, but Rhoda, she gets her name in there. Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice In her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She was so excited, she forgot to actually open the door. Which you'd think at that point, maybe Peter's standing there waiting for it to open for him. Maybe he's just like getting used to that whole gate opening thing, but didn't. But he's waiting there. The girl runs in. She said, he's standing out at the gate. He said, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They said, no, it's his angel. They were pretty close. There was an angel involved, but it wasn't his angel. There was this idea that you, you had a guardian angel at the time. They, they say you had a guardian angel, and if you were to see the guardian angel, it looked like you. It was kind of a, probably an old wives' tale. So, oh, it's his angel. 
that it wasn't. Maybe the other angel was his angel. We don't know. But Peter continued knocking, which is also fulfilling one of the things that Jesus said, right? Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if that's what he was thinking about, but he did. He knocked and knocked and kept knocking. They finally came, they opened the door, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. So a couple things with this. If an angel busts you out of jail, wouldn't your first thought to be maybe I should get out of town? But he doesn't. Where does he go? He goes because he's like, oh, I've got to go back and, and tell the brothers. This also feels very much like a Jesus move. You've got to go back to the brothers. Got to let them know what's going on. And that's what he does. He goes back and he tells them and he tells the story. That's actually the opposite of what Jesus would normally say. He's like, don't tell anybody. But we're past that now. Now we're telling everybody. So now he goes and he tells them all exactly what happened. What's so interesting is they had been praying for him. Praying and praying for him, seemingly from the first day until this day. And when the girl says, hey, he's at the door. He's, he's right outside. Oh, you're crazy. We're praying for him. He can't be out there. We're praying for him right now. And that's that weird, I have faith, Lord, help. What does he say? Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I, I believe enough to pray and be praying to you, Lord, but were they really expecting anything? We don't actually know what they were praying per se. Maybe it was a foregone conclusion. Peter's going to be executed. We pray that he is, you know, able to stand up, that he's able to be faithful. We pray that he would die well. We pray that he would be a great example. Were they really expecting that the Lord would save him from that particular trial? Maybe because they saw James had died, they just assumed, well, we'll pray, but probably not. How often do we pray that way? I I loved what Tom said right before I came up. It does say in in James that we have not because we ask not. Maybe sometimes we pray just not really expecting God's really going to do something. And so we pray that we would be okay when it doesn't happen. How, this is, you don't have to raise your hand. But how often when we pray, are we really praying that we would just be able to deal with the fact that just the bad things are going to happen? Lord, help us be okay when nothing goes right. Please help us when you don't show up and do what we would hope that you would do. Maybe we pray, but we always pray, you know, but Lord, your will be done, and that really is our way of voicing, I don't really think you're going to do this. And so we give ourselves a a back door out of our prayers so that we can say, well, the Lord, you know, the Lord answered our prayer and he helped us through the situation, but how often do you think we just don't really pray in faith that God's actually gonna really do anything? Then when the Lord answers that prayer, we're not surprised. Because here the Lord was doing something You could ask, why did James have to die and why did Peter get to live? Both James and Peter were part of that inner circle. We don't know where John is. He would have been the third out of that group. But why did James die? Why did Peter live? Why did God do it like that? And the, I mean, the easy answer is, well, God had things for Peter to do. 
which I guess is kind of always the answer when someone doesn't die. I guess there's more things for you to do. That's kind of, yeah, of course. But I think what's happening here is something bigger. As we close out the second act of Acts and move into our last, our third act of this big story. And I think it goes back to that seriousness of the gospel. See, when Herod had James taken and brought him up, and James died by the sword, do you think that Herod and his his people thought they'd won a victory? We won. Beat him. We'll get Peter. We'll do it again. You know, I'm pretty sure that when they put Jesus in the tomb and it was sealed, they also thought, we got this one in the, not in the bag. We got this one in the tomb. Done, right? It's nailed. Figured it. Figuratively and also in reality, they, it's done. We 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 killed we killed the we killed the leader of this rebellion. He's he's finished. It's it's completed. It's done. There is no reason to believe that there was any other expectation that if they killed off the leadership, that it would be done. When people saw Stephen died, it was super sad. But Stephen wasn't one of the twelve. We finally got one of the twelve. We got another one waiting. We'll kill this one. Boom. We're winning. We'll kill the next one. It's all downhill from here. They're all going to fold. It's finished. doesn't matter if they all scattered around the world. Their leaders are gone. They could kill James. But what did that really do to James? He got his reward. Ooh, Heaven. Got me there. Got the thing I was promised. Got the inheritance. There's really nothing you can do to James. Really. Maybe when he got to heaven, he's like, I won. I beat everybody here. Boom. Oh, Stephen, what's up? That would have, I mean, it's like, okay, I, I, I'm dead, but I just go to reward. And then there's Peter. Maybe there was a little bit of Peter that was disappointed. Maybe Peter was all... Maybe he was all ready. Maybe he was so settled in his heart and his mind. He's like, I die tomorrow. I go to be with the Lord. I know, I know what this is about. There might have been just, just a... <sighs> James beat me. Maybe. But there was more for Peter to do. But the real picture here is you can't stop the kingdom. You can't do it. And in fact, the more you try, the more it ramps up. So now we see what happens when they don't have a Peter. Verse 18, and now when the day came, there was a little disturbance among the soldiers. You can imagine why. Among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Now after Herod searched for him and did not find him, I don't think this fully represent. When it says Herod, I don't think King Herod is walking around looking in different cells, but I'm sure it is. Every resource available to Herod is out looking for Peter because you can imagine his boasting. We got James. You guys just wait. Day after the Unleavened Bread Festival is completed, right after the Passover, boom, you're going to have a show. And now they've got no main event. Nothing. They searched for him and didn't find him. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Well, that didn't turn out how they thought. Thought we'd get one of the apostles and he just has to kill off four of his own soldiers. I'm assuming it was just the two that were chained to him and the two guarding the, the door. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. I wonder why. I wonder why he skipped town. I wonder why he traveled 
all the way to you know, two provinces over and just hung out up there in a Gentile area. I wonder why he may have done that. And then we've got a little extra story here. Herod decides to leave. Verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. It's like we jump to a completely different story. We kind of do. He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's far north of Jerusalem. And they came to him in one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, that is a great name, by the way, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Harold put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. So he went to go speak. Remember, he's been educated in Rome. He's, he's gone through all the, He's probably very well-spoken. He probably has this. And also says he was in his robes. He's probably looked very impressive. Right? Maybe even had some of the uh, silver in there. Maybe was shining. You know, it's just like, wow. He's, he's very, he's good-looking up there. He looks like a king. There's enough of a spectacle for the people of that region there to say the voice of a god and not of a man, and immediately when that took place, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The end. Now, when I was a kid and I read that, because you always read those bits over when you're a kid, you're like, whoa. So he like fell down and like a bunch of worms came and ate him? That's weird. What happened, Josephus fills in the gaps. This happened. He had pains in his heart. We had a terrible abdominal pain. He doubled over. He collapsed. Five days later, they, he died. They found that he had been eaten on the insides. He had a type of parasite, type of worm inside. He was eaten from the inside. There you go. So that actually is what took place. And then he breathed his last. I wonder if that was the same angel because that would have been poetic. I wonder who in heaven is volunteering for that. Send me, I want to do that. Strike them with worms. And so if you look at this chapter beginning to end, what this really is is introduced by Herod. Herod went out to go do a thing. And where does it end up? Herod gets eaten by worms. This really is a story of the cautionary tale of King Herod going up against the plan of God. If this was, Bullwinkle would have a second clever title. I don't have one. Look at verse 24. This is, this is my favorite. This is the way that you end this story. So they intended to kill off the apostles to end the church to kind of run it into the ground in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The opposite the opposite of what they intended took place. In verse 25, this is where you get that transition. Because from this point on, you don't have any more stories of Peter. There's no more misadventures of Peter the apostle. We don't really hear about him anymore until we get to his letters. It says here, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, There goes John Mark with them. And we start some new adventures with some new characters. But what didn't happen was the end of the church. That is not what took place. As I said it before, persecution and martyrdom, I think, is a response by the enemy and by the kingdom of darkness to a real true stating of the gospel and a general understanding of the seriousness of the kingdom of heaven. When that message of the seriousness of the kingdom of heaven from the ambassadors of the kingdom who are here, the church, there is no other response that the kingdom of darkness has than to try to silence it. 
And if the enemy can silence it through distraction, he will. If the enemy can silence it through prosperity, he will. If he can finish it off just through fear, he will. But when all of those are ineffective, and the kingdom of darkness coalesces together against the kingdom of God, you will get the result of persecution. And when that fails, and it does, you will get martyrdom or attempted martyrdom because sometimes God has other plans. Lest you think this is a old story of persecution and martyrdom. And I've heard this question quite a few times. Is martyrdom coming to the church today? Is martyrdom coming to the United States? Will we see persecution here? And I don't know if all of you or any of you really keep up with the uh, current numbers and stories that are going on around the world. There's more persecution today than there ever has been in the church. Not just, you know, percentage-wise, just because there's more people. But there's actual ramping up. And I have some examples here real quick. Most of the examples here are Islamic. Islamic uh, opposition. But I just think that they are probably the group that is actually taking the kingdom seriously. If you know what I mean. Everyone else will catch up. You just wait. Eventually they will. In Nigeria, is it because we're Christians that they're being attacked? Muslim-controlled state, federal government, they don't care to protect us. It comes from one Christian in Nigeria. A Muslim bulldozer driver at a construction site killed his supervisor, who was a Christian, by crushing him to death just out on the job site. That's in Egypt. In Sudan, both sides of the civil war led by Islamists trying to portray themselves in, as, or to the international community as pro-democracy advocates of religious freedom. But both of those groups, both sides, focus on destroying Christians and Christian churches. Sudan has been governed by Sharia law since 1983 and is one of the only few countries in the modern times where the death penalty for apostasy is still carried out. In one such, one such case from 94, two Christians from a tribal group had converted from Islam in the early 70s and were executed by crucifixion. In Uganda, says, I answered him that the Bible is the holy book, and he beat me that night and told me that he was punishing me for leaving Islam and that he will, uh, he will be automatically rewarded in paradise by Allah. He took me in his vehicle and he dumped me inside Queen Elizabeth National Park to be eaten by the wild animals. Now that one's interesting because once they did that, a couple of Christians just happened to be coming by and recognized them and got him and took him home. Baby Jesus in a 400-year-old painting had its throat slit with a knife. You want to know where that one was? That was in Germany on June 2nd of this year. The heads of the Virgin Mary and Babe Jesus were decapitated from a statue on a French island. They were taken by Muslim migrants. It was May 23rd of this year. There are many, 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 many examples of this. And I don't say this to make everyone fearful. What I actually want to do is go back to what we had stated before is that the gospel uh, properly stated with the proper seriousness, with the correct information from the kingdom of darkness should yield a reaction equal to the seriousness of the gospel. 
So as you see persecution and as you see martyrdom increasing, what you should actually see is church is on the move. Church is being effective. God is doing something in these places. We don't pray that persecution would come, but oftentimes persecution is the signal that what is being preached is real and is really having an effect. And so we should pray for people in all these different areas where there's persecution and recognize that persecution will increase as the seriousness of the gospel is understood. And so we will pray for them, just like we prayed for Peter so many, many generations ago. Not that it would just be ended, but that the kingdom of God would march on and that we would see our king come quickly. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the example of the apostles. Thank you that they took you seriously when they gave up all that they had to follow after you. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we read your word and understand what you're doing, Lord, that we would be confronted daily with our mandate to die to ourselves, take up our cross and follow you. Lord, if we do this with a serious mind and a resolute spirit, whatever comes that day, Lord, we will see as an opportunity to live out our discipleship to you. Whether it means sleeping in a storm, maybe literal, probably figurative. Whether it means having patience beyond what we are capable of, but the type that comes from the Spirit. Whether it means being able to take ridicule, whether it means to wait on the Spirit for the proper answer to a question, to an accusation, or to an insult. Lord, I pray that we would become a people that is so resolute to give our lives over to you that every day we would find those opportunities to live out our discipleship in a way that conveys the truth of the gospel as well as the seriousness of the coming of the kingdom. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come soon. Lord, we pray that this kingdom of darkness would be thwarted in all of its forms. We pray that the oppressors and the wicked would be judged. Lord, we pray that you would come and you would save the widow, save the orphan. Lord, that you would bring justice. Lord, that your perfect justice would ring and that you would exact it. We pray for nothing less. And so in saying that, Lord, we pray that we would not take vengeance, but instead speak the true gospel and we would take whatever the serious ramifications it might entail. And Lord, I pray we would decide it before the opportunity arises that we might walk that narrow path. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.